Welcome to Education Conversations, where educators talk about the most important issues facing education. Our mission is to ignite your mission through the exploration of difficult and relevant topics. When we come together to talk, open ourselves to new ideas, we discover that we become closer together as a people. Hi, this is Joseph Moylan here again with Corey Thompson to talk about the intersection of school and uh, racism. And today we're excited to have a number of white educators uh, who, who've come together to talk with us about um, this topic and uh, have a vast experience, uh, you know, working with students throughout many years. So, uh, Corey, um, I'll give you a chance to introduce uh, the other two, but if, if you'll allow me, uh, Lisa Dawes, my longtime friend, is here and colleague. We worked together for many years in the school district, and Lisa served as a pupil services director for many years and um, is currently working in a private school, doing some special ed work with, with students, um, and so has a lot of history and really was uh, important in my school district in setting us on the path of discussing racism and um, how we serve all kids uh, really was back then our focus, so. Thank you, Joseph, and I'm pleased to introduce to you uh, Melissa Santa Cruz from Milwaukee Public Schools, currently serving as a counselor mm -hmm. uh, at Bayview High School, one of the more diverse schools within the district. Welcome to the conversation, Melissa. And uh, my friend, Coach Rob Harrington, uh, men's soccer coach, uh, Milwaukee School of Engineering, and also highly involved in the soccer scene here in the Milwaukee area. And most recently, uh, maybe a couple hours old, really, uh, was a part of, of uh, truly a historic moment in this city where um, the soccer stadium and field at Custer High School on Milwaukee's north side uh, will be renamed to honor Jimmy Banks. And for those who don't know, Jimmy Banks is was one of only three Wisconsinites and the first African-American uh, to play for the United States men's national soccer team at the World Cup level. And Jimmy grew up in Milwaukee and had strong ties to the city. And it was my fortune to be able to work with Rob in helping to bring that change about. And that just happened literally a day ago. 48 hours. Yeah. So uh, we're excited to, to have that uh, be a part of Milwaukee's history moving forward. So welcome to the conversation today, Rob. So, um, all of you in your different roles have invested in the, the conversation around um, racism in schools and worked with uh, diverse environments. And I'm just curious for the audience to hear um, sort of your history and what sort of made you passionate about this, this topic as educators and white people um, working with kids. So, I don't know, Melissa, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so my background is not um, in education originally. My background um, is in counseling. So I was a sociology major in college. And back as an undergraduate in the 1990s, I took a sociology of education class and heard an incredible um, speaker who had just written a new book called Savage Inequalities. And that person, as we all may know, was Jonathan Kozal. Um, and I really looked to that experience as one that changed my life, if I can pinpoint one thing. Um, back to um, that event, I was incredibly moved by it, um, read his book, have an autographed copy of his book, and then, you know, as life often does, life kind of took me in a different direction. Um, and I went into counseling. I worked in counseling and healthcare for quite some time, and then really came back to feeling this uh, voice, you know, inside my head that, that I, what I want to do is counseling in schools, um, specifically because that's where um, students can be reached with mental health services that may not be able to be reached in other, you know, other places. So um, that's how I came to, uh, I went back to graduate school, got my license in school counseling and worked for MPS and Bayview High School and I love my job. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, uh, for one, I'm not, uh, I guess I'm in the world of education. It's just um, education while wearing shorts, I guess, is the difference. You, you sometimes have the better job. I mean, I think the coaching might be, you know. A little, I think so. Yeah. Tough guy, though. A tough guy. If I wasn't a coach, I'd probably be a teacher. Um, so Your dad was an MPS teacher. My dad was an MPS teacher for 35 years, so yeah, it's, it's, it's in my blood. Um, 
I think, uh, you know, first off, going back as a, as a kid, uh, I grew up, you know, with 12 years of, of Catholic school, um, you know, grew up in Wauwatosa, surrounded by mostly, you know, not completely, but mostly like Irish Catholic families with five kids in them. Um, and so I think I had this odd awareness of race as a kid based on being uh, a kid who loves sports. And so um, I, you know, if I look at back at all my heroes as a kid, they were all, you know, black athletes, but I didn't know any people of color. And so I think that, that odd introduction of me like going home and I love to read. And so as a little kid, I'd be reading all these books about, you know, Earl Campbell or Jim Brown, you know, um, eventually Pele, right? And, um, but I didn't know any people of color. And I feel like I really clumsily went through the process of understanding, um, you know, that other people live different lives that I don't really understand at all. And uh, the beautiful thing about sport is that I think, one, I got a chance to meet people of different um, ethnicities and races when I started playing club soccer as I got older. And the interesting thing about that dynamic is you're automatically put into a place where you both love the same thing, right? And then you have the same goals, right? So your, your relationship is based upon this sport, right? And then slowly within that relationship, you start to break apart these other stereotypes and thoughts you might have about people of, um, of different races and ethnicities. And I think that always carried with me um, and that I was lucky to play a sport that was, you know, international. Um, and then in my coaching career, it's become uh, something I've always felt passionate about, but I also feel like um, we're never quite doing enough. mean that holistically like we're never quite doing enough for everybody right like um, essentially white people do not know black people to put it simply and black people don't know white people and there's so many presumptions and assumptions coming at both sides um, and I feel lucky to at least be in something where some of those things can get can get torn apart um, and yeah so that's I think how I'm uh, grown up a passion for Lisa. Um, so my passion, I, I think, came from, I'm coming in from a different lens of through special education. So in my career working with special education, I've, in, in many places for lots of years, those were the excluded kids, right? So that was the first lens of coming into inequities, right? And, and people's feelings and emotions around special education. And you mentioned uh, in our conversation a little bit earlier before we got on, about uh, other people not wanting their kids with kids that have disabilities. And, and it hasn't been that long, really, in uh, so our, our society where special ed kids have been part of regular schools and definitely not included. So in my work through inclusion, um, started to get into that social justice equity lens of who else is being excluded. And one day I uh, was teaching in a district outside of Madison and I walked into the special education classroom and this school district was only at that time maybe 10% um, African-American and the whole room was full of black kids with disabilities not one white child in the room and I thought wow this is wrong like there's there's something wrong here and so that just sort of began my passion for you know where, what are we doing about this? And where's the disproportionality in, um, in, in special ed around labeling kids that are different from uh, it, it just in color to saying they have a disability? Like just, um, that just began a, a whole level of unturning rocks and having conversations. Um, and then went into being a, a leader and then you know, in that social justice leadership role trying to lead schools and teams and administrators through equity work for all kids. Um, and that, it, it kind of became my, my crossroads with, with that and um, interesting paths to, uh, and people to 
continue along that way. Thanks. You know, it's interesting what you saw in that classroom is really um, a living example of some national statistics, some some reasons why school districts ask, or why, why uh, colleges ask uh, students to go into school districts and do equity audits, you know, because you can find that same picture all over the place. I mean, that's, that's a, a national issue um, for sure. Yeah, interesting. You know, as I listen to the three of you speak about the choices that you've made, there's been a theme of intentionality, and Joseph knows it's one of my favorite words, and, and I also, and you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I also, this is what I heard, that as white people, uh, in a sense, you've used your privilege for good. Uh, anybody want to expand on that? You know, you, or you, you've been intentional about you, you the, the question that you asked when you, because I know a number of people who would look at that same classroom, Lisa, and say, well, they deserve to be here. These are, you know, I mean, I don't, I do, fortunately, I do know a number of people who are white who would also look at that class and say that that's wrong. But I'm concerned about those who would look at it and see nothing wrong with that. And I think the three of you, at least in the little bit of time I've gotten to know you here, have spoken to intentionality or just using your privilege for good. Anybody want to speak to that? Sure, I can. Um, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a great question. It's um, one that I feel I could talk for two hours about, so let me try to succinctly tackle that. Um, you know, especially in my work as a counselor, um, we do a lot of work around identity development and authenticity and really, you know, getting to the root of ourselves. So um, part, of, part of that is being honest with the world around us, um, the way we grew up, what we learned, um, opening our eyes to what's happening. And so when we decide to take a closer look, it's impossible to then look away. That's how I feel. And so um, really taking a, a close look and learning um, about our neighborhoods, our city, our community, our world is um, necessary. And then a, a, an integral part of, once you know that information, um, how can we have a conscience and not work to, to try to dismantle it? Um, that's how I feel about it. I, I think, um, you know, the work we do every day um, there, there is an intersection of, of all of those things, whether it's special education and race, class, um, gender, it, it all plays a role in, in creating a, a more fair and just, and just world, and we all have a part to play in that. So I, that's how I, I feel. You just, once you know that information, there's always more to know, and um, we all have a part, a part in it, and we can't look away from it. I think in, in my case, it, it's probably different. I, I be honest, I probably would say I'm not intentional enough, maybe. Um, and I think, uh, you know, sports had this great ability to be one of the, 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 the first um, places where the color barrier got broke, right? But I, I don't think it got broke historically because um, people weren't racist. I think they wanted to win games, right? And so they said, Cleveland Browns said, yeah, we're going to bring some African-American players on the team. We're better now because of it. You know, and baseball said, we're going to bring Jackie Robinson on the team. We're going to be better. Um, to some extent, with, with sport, in my own job, at the end of the day, like uh, now, especially in the college setting, like you want to win games. So who do you recruit? The best players. Like You really don't, to be honest, pay that much attention to where they come from, right? If they can come to your school and, and do well, um, then that's who you want. And I think, um, but I think the the important part is once you are you have a multicultural team, um, how do you actually get the kids not just to go for a common goal of, of winning, right? But how do you get the kids to understand that you come from different places if they do come from different places? And I think 
Uh, that's the part that I feel um, intentional about in my setting, is making sure that they understand that they come from different places, have different worlds, and um, are thoughtful about those different worlds. And I think that's um, really important in that setting because you not only have this one goal, but then you're breaking apart more barriers. Um, and just to add to that, I apologize, but I think um, often that what happens in these settings of sport or other things, or it could be work, people work together, but they don't get to know each other, right? Or they play together, but they really don't get to know each other. And they come out of it and they think, you know, no, I really did get to know that person. I'm fine. I know what I need to know. And, and they don't. And I think that's um, a big issue. But can, can, can I ask you a question off of that, though? So you, there's a supposition maybe behind what you're saying in that you believe that that team is only going to perform the best that it can if people work well together. And that when you're talking about working on building a team with people who have different cultures, there has to be some intentionality to that because you as their coach in, in that statement believe that there's a benefit to them playing better together, knowing each other, right? I do. I, I do for sure. But I will tell you this. I mean, um, I just read uh, John Thompson's book, um, if you know the, the former yep. coach of Georgetown George University. Yeah. I came as a shadow if you want to read a great read. It's great. And they talked to, to John Thompson about, like, about all the kids he recruited and how he helped him and everything. And John Thompson says, hey, hold on a second. Don't kid yourself. I wanted to win basketball games. You know? He was like, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, I, I helped kids, but there's certain kids that I didn't help because I need to go win basketball games. So I would tell you that's important, but I would also tell you as a coach, sometimes it's like we, we can get too into this, like, okay, let's all get around the campfire and sing, as opposed to uh, let's figure out how to score goals. Gotcha. Um, so I think there's a there's a balance there, but for sure, you are better if your players like and respect each other and have an idea where they come from. Um, but where your role in that is as a coach, I, I got to be honest, that's really one of the more difficult things to, to to do. And I would assume in a classroom, you know, if somebody has to learn multiplication tables, you don't necessarily have time to go. You guys need to get to know each other. Yeah, and that might be a departure you know, between sports and learning. And so maybe I'll direct the question, Lisa, to you. In, but, but I think you would you get where I was coming from on this question, that if in a school everybody doesn't see each other, understand culture, get along, if teachers don't know how to discipline differently based on culture, um, all of that, learning's going to be what's harmed. And so how do you get everybody on the same page having the same kinds of conversations about this in a school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's <clears throat> that's actually what I wanted to talk about to, with, to answer both of your questions then. Um, so a good friend and colleague of mine who's now a superintendent outside of Chicago, Kurt Schneider, who mm -hmm. you may know Joseph, um, in his work and, and my modeling after a lot of what he started is like, as an administrator, find your entry point, right? Find a way, find your way in, whatever that way in that people will listen to, tolerate, and then from there, start to expand your voice, right, and expand. So my work and my way of doing that, you know, with my white privilege and my position authority as an administrator was to start with getting people to understand their belief systems in education. Like, if you can not, not start talking about race, not start, start talking about disability, but start talking about what do you believe in that's good for kids, and get them to collectively agree that that's the right thing. I mean, I don't mean to be like trickery or anything around that statement, but there's no way you can't walk through the door of doing better things around race, um, ethnicity, disability. disability, gender, all of those things, because you've now foundationally set as a group, as a collective group, that this is what you believe in. And if that's what you believe in, then you gotta start putting your actions behind that. And I think that's where it gets tricky because that's where you hit a wall, right? So sometimes people will say, yes, I'm in. And you will find those to be your front running social justice leaders and teachers and 
administrators, and then you will find people be like, yeah, I believe this, but I, I can't, point, I can't right. do anything. I'm not going to do anything about that. And so that's how I use my um, privilege. Um, and then also a little bit of this, the, the laws behind special ed and equity pieces around that allowed me to pull in some other pieces to kind of push a little more um, into people's discomfort, I guess, is for any, for lack mm -hmm. of a better way. And um, yeah, it's a journey. So one of the things that maybe we have been unable to this point uncover um, in, in discussion, and Corey and I talk about the nuance of racism a bit, um, I'm giving it a different phraseology today, but you know, I recognize as a white male um, things that uh, white people say that are not intended to be racist. And the worst thing that you can say to a white person is, you're a racist. And so people want to cover that up. They want to hide their racism. And so they try to do other things like change voting laws or, you know, just uh, um, redistricting or, you know, pick. There's lots of different ways, and I don't mean to be political necessarily, but I do think that there are things that are specifically targeted to suppress others and or to, um, to express my racism, but quietly so that I don't have to be called a racist. And I wonder if in your work you see this undertow of racism and I wonder how in your lives, and I literally yesterday had a, a gentleman who was in my office, uh, my other office, uh, talking to me about um, how lazy people in the inner city, blah, 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 but never said black people. Um, and, you know, I said to him, so who are you talking about? And I, and I just kept pressing with questions. And he lost his sort of response narrative to me, you know, which is the narrative you learn in response to what, whatever it is that everybody is throwing at you. He didn't have any more left after a few whys or what's. Um, and that was my way of challenging him. I'm wondering how you guys have experienced that undertow and how you've answered it in your lives as white people. Anybody? But my first thing that comes to mind is, um, in my experience, is, is um, white administrators, mostly, and teachers that are that struggle with dealing with um, uh, African American black families, and um, have always have a, a reason why they don't have respect for what that family has to bring to the table around their child, right? And so um, that I think is the, it was really hard for, it was always hard for me to navigate with like around discipline or consequences or whatever around um, um, families defending their child from a viewpoint of culture and, and administrators and teachers not being able to hear that and saying things that were just not appropriate around that family. Um, so that I think, came up and they felt like that wasn't racist, like that's just, that's no, that's just this mom. Like you, you haven't met this dad. But it tended to always be the black mom and the black dad or the black grandma, the black grandpa, aunt. And so that just, I think, became very apparent um, in some of the work that I've done with schools. That's, that's exactly the illustration of what I was looking for, those, those subtle, you know, um, distinguishing sorts of um, statements that not, aren't necessarily, you know, sort of benign on the, on the surface, but underneath it all is an undercurrent of, of something else. Melissa, you're... Yeah, I think um, when I think about this topic, I think, um, I think it has a lot to do with ego when I really think about it. And as a white woman, um, you know, I do my best to be intentional and... Um, and um, be aware of everyone's different identities, race, ethnicity, all of the above, but I'm going to make mistakes. And so I think where I really struggle with this concept is, um, I mean, nobody nobody wants to be called a racist, but in, in, in actuality, as white people, we didn't grow up in an apolitical world. We did not grow up in a vacuum. So we all have components of our own identity that are... Um, I don't want to say troubled, but but that are um, biased. And so, you know, I think that when, um, you know, when I think about educational administration and, and working within a building, 
it really is about um, being intentional about directing that a staff should always be on a continuum of learning. We all have something to learn. And if we mess up, it's, it's important to own it and address the person that we messed up with. And, and, and frankly, to back up a step is to um, let go of our own ego and, and hear criticism and hear feedback because we are all going to make mistakes on, on that, in that realm. And so in order to, um, to grow, we have to recognize that it's not like, um, and I think even Max Kennedy talks about this, this is not a destination. We are not, it's not possible to be at a place of being completely anti-racist. We're always learning. And so, you know, I think it's, it's really necessary that we, um, think about our own interactions and our own behaviors and get to know each individual as an individual and not, you know, see somebody as, we just had parent-teacher conferences. So, you know, I, I'm not, I don't go into a conference thinking this is how this person might act or behave or were they late or can they come? Did they show up? It, it's because of a certain reason. They're an individual, just like we are all individuals. And so it's really important to check our own biases um, and be open to doing that. And if we're not open to doing that, then in my opinion, we have no place in education. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I think one of the, um, the difficulties of these conversations now is the vilification um, of everybody, right? So um, I think the experience, at least of the kids I coach, right? And I coach a lot, coach a lot of white kids, right? But the experience of a lot of the white kids now is different than a lot of the experience I think that I grew up with, right? So I don't think you have the same amount of uncles or parents or grandparents or neighbors openly saying racist, like just obviously racist things, right? And so I think a lot of kids grow up now um, very naive, right? Because they still grow up segregated, right? But they're not growing up. You know, they might grow up watching, you know, a lot of television shows and listening to music um, from African-American people, um, playing sports, you know, maybe if they're not going to school with kids of a different race, they're probably playing more sports with them than they used to, at least the kids I'm around. And I think one of the things that happens now is when one of these kids says something that's naive, that is, you know, would be considered a microaggression, um, they get attacked. Right? And that attack changes the argument immediately, right? Because now that person's on the defensive. And I think we have a dangerous thing going on now where there's so much attacking, right? That we're that we can't help people learn. Because like you said, nobody wants to be described as a racist. Well, if you're a fifteen year old kid and you say something and you really don't know any better, right? And then you get attacked for it. Well, now, it, it's hard to learn, right? Because none of us wants to be attacked, right? And I think that is a, it's a real issue. Um, and so I think in a lot of these conversations we're having, the attack mode, right, is way too high. I just... Um, on both sides. On both okay. sides. And that's what I'm saying. I just gave a friend of mine a um, podcast. Maybe some of you in our like-minded room here, some of you have listened to Nice White Parents. Is that yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. right? And so I, I gave it to a friend of mine, and um, and we kind of like debate these kind of issues. He's also white, and he was listening to it, and he's like, ah, he's like, I was getting so mad. These people are so tone deaf, and, and I was like, um, I go, yeah, but that's what we have to stop doing. We have to stop getting mad that this woman, who, if you don't know the story, that they they went to an all African American school and did a French immersion language thing, right, and that brought all this money into the school and everything, but then the people that were originally there were like, our school got stolen from us, right? You took our school, you, it wasn't intended, this why it's called Nice White Parents, it wasn't intended, right? It was intended to bolster the school, give them something new, but now these really tone deaf people are saying these things, and if you listen to the podcast, you're ready to like, joke them, right? But that's the title of the podcast, is Nice White Parents. They didn't come in intending to do this, right? Well, and you're pointing out an interesting thing that I think has happened in our society. I think we've gone from a trust society where I trust that when I'm saying something to you, 
you have my best interest at heart, that if I've screwed up, you're going to help me to learn something new, and, and perhaps I can walk away from that having learned something new, to a belief society where when I listen to you and I don't hear you parrot beliefs that, that mirror mine, you are now morally corrupt or unaccessible, and so I need to dismiss you. And that's the, the current political debate. That's sometimes a religious debate in this world. But if we don't get back to a trust society where we can teach each other, where we can talk to each other, that's really what you're pointing out. Yeah. You know, the attack mode comes out of that. Yeah. Belief. We're saying what's wrong with you instead of saying how did you get there, right? It's well, what's wrong with you. Right? Well, here's, here's another way to think about it, right? But I would also argue as, as white people that we have a responsibility in a situation like that to, to take a step back and... Um, and I know easier said than done, and I'm not saying I disagree with you, but I think we have a responsibility in that moment to, to diffuse, we can diffuse the attack mode, and we can say, I help me learn. And so that's a lot to ask of, of students, of course, young people, that's a lot to, to ask anyone. But I think that, um, you know, I would argue that it was, nobody was saying anything for so long, and so now... As white people, I, I don't think that we can be fragile about it. You know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's on us. It's our responsibility. And so if I, if I get attacked and I feel attacked, it's my responsibility to, um, to, to bring it down and, and, and take the attack mode out of it and learn from it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, did, I think a kid came to my office, at, and it was right after the George Floyd thing. So he had sent out, a, um, I think, a text chain to a bunch of kids um, saying the officers were um, you know, found guilty, right? And then he got a bunch of responses he didn't you know, expect, right? And then he wrote right away, you're all racist, right? And then, you know, like, yeah, it, then it just went south. And so he came to my office and he was so upset. And I, and I was like, yeah, I'm like... I, you know, you know where I come from, but I'm like, you just, you just attacked everybody. Like, now they're all on the defensive, right? So we're not going to solve this now. Like, now you, now we have to, like, peel away all that to go back to start over to say, you know, how, how did you come to your conclusions? You know, and the, and the problem a lot of times with, with anything is it takes time, right? But I was like, that moment that he said that, I'm like, you know, you just... You just attacked everybody, right? Um, so I, I apologize if I'm talking too much. Um, Tom Izzo, who's the coach at Michigan State University for basketball, right? He's from Iron Mountain, Michigan. And he, you know, played basketball growing up, loved basketball. Um, he's in Iron Mountain, Michigan. He's not surrounded by anybody, people of color. So his description of his coaching career is like, as I got older, I started playing you know, a couple African-American people, not many, because I played up in northern Michigan, right? He goes, I started coaching. I didn't think anything of it. He goes, part of that helped me. I had no preconceived notions of anybody. I just coached them. Well, now, once I started doing it more, I got to know people, right? And I and I got more involved in their lives. I had to visit their houses and recruit them. And I was in, in Detroit recruiting them, coming to my team. And he's like, but actually, my ignorance, he goes, I thought it helped me. Because no one was saying, you know, terrible things about anybody because we, we just didn't know anybody. Um, I just feel like so often now the attack mode is an issue. And I just listened to a show the other day with a guy who goes around and tries to help um, improve policing efforts. And um, the way it was described at the end is like, it's really unsexy because no one feels like a winner. Because all he does is come in and try to change behavior. He doesn't try to change beliefs. He's an African-American guy. He comes, does, not trying to change anybody's beliefs. He's trying to change behavior so things go in a, in a better direction. Um, and so I just think that, in, in my estimation, too much of the conversation now is about, you know, who's wrong, who's wrong right? Who's wrong instead of helping people. <coughs> so, Melissa, you said for so long nobody said anything. And then George Floyd happened, and now everybody wants to have a diversity and equity inclusion committee, task force team, etc. You know, Joseph and I have the responsibility and the privilege of 
being department chairs in leadership programs. And I guess to the three of you, what would your message be to us to help us in that role of helping these leaders create communities, schools, and cultures and climates that would get us closer to uh, a common ground in our conversation? Because we don't want to shut it down. And we know that you and I have talked, Rob, about defund the police and what that term has done and how that shut doors, right? Uh, or you're racist. Or, so can you help us as leaders of, of departments helping prepare future leaders? What do we need to do to help with this conversation? Well, I think one entry point into that conversation is always what is the data in that you know, in your, their future schools showing them. And I think in even the courses that I've taught here and uh, when you start to really look at the objective information and break it down and disaggregate it by all of those um, um, subgroups, they see a picture and that picture is hard to ignore, right? And so you then start to think about, well, what are, what are we gonna do about this? And I, I feel like that the more people can look, but not all places, not all schools, not all districts, not all leaders, disaggregate and really pay attention to that information and what the information can uh, can tell them. Um, and sometimes they're looking at that in their coursework here for the first time, because no one showed it to them before. Well, and, and, and I might add on to Corey's question too. In the current environment where a lot of school districts don't want to talk about CRT. How do we prepare those those leaders? In CRT is, please hear it as a a symbol word, right? It is it is symbolic that word, not actual, but you get what it represents. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think the the first thing I would tackle is exactly what you just clarified. You know, I there's so much in the news about CRT, and and just watching this is so maddening because you go into K twelve classrooms. Nobody is teaching CRT. That's not happening. We are teaching about history and we are teaching about compassion and we are teaching about knowing each other. And, and you know, I go into the classroom, um, the classrooms at Bayview very often, and I'm just always blown away and impressed by how teachers are, are tackling real life issues and, and um, you know, embedding it into their curriculum and their core content. So I would start off by saying that. Um, the other thing I would say for you know future leaders is um, to really create a, an environment of always learning. You know, having book studies, and I know that reading is not going to solve anything. But if we don't know what's going on, as um, as we were talking about data a second ago, you know, knowing the history, knowing what's going on right now, knowing. Um, you know, the, not to use a cliche, but when we know better, we do better. And so we have to start there by, by recognizing the way things have been and the way things currently are. Um, you know, and beyond that, I would say that we have to ask ourselves questions when we go to work every day. Is this best for kids? What, what, how are we doing? What are we doing to dismantle inequity? Every single day, no matter what we're doing, we have to ask ourselves those questions. And if we're not, then again, I would say, what are we doing in education? Because it's just, it's, you know, to open your eyes to the um, inequitable systems is just, it's overwhelming. So, you know, if each of us do our part by, by asking those things and working together, then, you know, um, we fear what we don't know, whether it's people, data. Uh, when we know something, then we can, we can start to, um, be intentional that our actions in our own roles at our school in order to, to dismantle it. Um, data, I mean, that's, that's a big amount of data. I mean, uh, our dear friend who passed away here used to say, follow the data, right? Peter Jonas, follow the data. And I think um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the aggravating thing about hearing you know, these, these movements and school boards about what you don't teach, right, is, no, we, we just want to teach what's happened and how it impacts us, right? And so I was just in a class uh, the other day where they were talking about um, a study that was done where they took 
the same resume, and they, as you guys, are, I'm sure you guys have heard this, they picked yeah. the same resume, and they gave it white names, white sounding names, and African American sounding names, right? And to, you know, almost perfectly, the people, the ones with white names were looked at as good resumes, and the ones with black sounding names were, weren't looked as good resumes. That's a pretty simple study to show that, like, that's data. <clears throat> this is the proof, right? And so one, I, I think we need more of that out there, right? We need more of the proof out there. Um, but the proof isn't just studies like that. It's also the social science studies, like, of how our brain works. And I think one of the things we, like, in the, in the world of education, we have to do a much better job uh, and I'm not in education, you guys are, so blow me up if I'm wrong, but getting kids at a younger age to understand this is a piece of biology, right? And it's nothing spectacular, like your ideas, it's great that you have great ideas, but they're attached to a brain that's gonna respond to certain things in certain ways, and we have to work on that. Right now, in the world of race, I think like a, a study I recently read said that the LGBTQ community has made greater advancements than almost any other minority group, right? Uh, and the reason being is it's your brother, it's your sister, it's your uncle, right? It's all these people that you know and love and they look like you and they act like you. There's just this one difference, right? And so how can't you love them, right? How can't you love them? One of our issues with, with um, you know, people of a different race is we don't know them, right? And so as we tackle the is issue of race, I think one of the biggest things we have to tackle, and you talked about, or I think it was you, sorry, I'm pointing. I'm on a podcast and I'm pointing everybody. Um, but Melissa, right? Melissa, you talked about when people come in to see you and you're working with them, getting rid of your ideas about who they are, right? And so one of the things I think is really important that we have to start doing is saying, we're more alike. Like, let's quit talking about our differences. We're more alike. We both want the best for our kids. We want the best here. We have all these commonalities, and once we find our commonalities, we can we can start working on the differences. But we're so busy fighting that we're not getting we're not getting busy knowing each other. And if we don't get busy knowing each other, we're not going to find that love that's going to make this all way easier, right? And that's why I would say it's like really nice on those sports because they have a commonality to begin with. But the more we know each other and respect each other and find out that we're really way more alike, then I think the other parts start to get stripped away a lot easier. And I would just add, <clears throat> I think for upcoming administrators in your program, they're gonna be faced with trying to have those conversations and find that common ground, and they're going to run into places where that isn't well received. And, and so then they, they, they're stuck in how do, I, how do I do this work? How do I have those conversations and that common ground and find that we're all alike and um, see see people for who they are, not what color they are, and all of these other things. They don't know how to have those conversations. And as young, new administrators, they don't know how to have them safely. Um, and so what, what do they do? Like, how do they, what's, what's the best approach? Who are the people that um, they can talk to about that? Like, what, how do you start those conversations without putting yourself in a, place of risk, because they're coming out of school passionate about doing that work. Do you mind if I ask a quick question? Because yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, if you're in a school that's 90% African-American, or 70% African-American, I just feel like those conversations are gonna get had. And if you're in a school that's 90% white, no? I don't think so. You know, and we've, we've had this conversation about, is it as important to have discussion about racism in a black school as it is in a white school. Yeah, yeah. it might sound different, but it's as, as important. We had, uh, on the previous podcast, we had three African-American principals um, here, or uh, administrators, and, you know, when I asked that question of them, they said yes. I mean, do you want to talk about why it's just as important there as... Well, I'm not saying it's unimportant. I said, would, would, I'm, would it happen? Yeah, it seems like it's crazy because this movement is happening, and then if you would walk into a school that's 80% African-American, they're just going to continue having conversations using CRT as the buzzword. And if you walk into a white school, they're not going to. And 
talk about creating a divide. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right? That's why I'm just like, does anybody see that that's what's going to happen? You're probably living it the most. I'm living <laughs> it a lot. I mean, I think that it also, you know, at the risk of sounding um, judgmental, I think it depends on what county you're in in Wisconsin, yeah. you know? And and I think part of the problem for me that I think we are we are being held hostage by school boards because we are viewing we are viewing students as like consumers as opposed to citizens. Are we all in the same world that we need to learn about each other? And and um, so many areas don't think that that problems or behaviors or or different topics affect them when in reality it affects all of us. And I think so. What's happening is little pockets of school boards and towns feel like they are again being held hostage by the consumer that is the parents and the school board who don't want their mostly I'm gonna probably start saying things that I shouldn't say but <laughs> don't want their um, their ACT scores to look different and their you know their their um, school report cards you know it's just we are we are all it's it's like a community or a state or a country that is directed by those things rather than, um, you know, the the Ubuntu like I am because we are we're all we are all together and we just don't view it that way. So, so that's an interesting notion that in its origins, public education was about a commonality, preparing all students to be citizens of a country. Right, going back to your citizen comment, mm -hmm. that there were certain things that you needed to know, and um, in in my writing. I've, I've, I've tried to make this point, drawing back to sex education, driver education, drug education. You know, you can go down the list of things that have been piled onto public schools that were social ills that needed to be fixed that we gave to the schools to handle. And, you know, at the end of the day, what happened with those issues where we improved, um, you know, society based on the education we provided. But when it comes to racism, we shut that conversation down because there isn't racism in the 1960s, they made laws about this, it's gone now, and we don't have to deal with it anymore, and don't make my kid feel ashamed, um, is, is sort of the line, right? So, so I, and I, I have three uh, white, white children, and I can tell you that they're not ashamed, and they don't feel shamed when we talk about racism. But the, the notion of this individual approach to education that's come out, uh, what was it, the Consumer Bill of Rights or the Parents' Bill of Rights, it just got proposed, um, you know, the, the, the notion that I can come in as a parent and I have to know the curriculum ahead of time so that I can excuse my child from class so they don't have to hear about it. Our common good, you know, this notion that goes back to Aristotle of the common good is gone. Um, and we have moved to this Burger King method of public education, which is your way right away. Um, you know, and... and, and, and what good is it going to do for us if our children don't come out with this set of skills? Because if you asked an employer, what would be best for you to hire? Would it be best for you to hire somebody who can move through cultures and environments with people who look different than them or somebody who can't? What do you think their answer would be? But we shouldn't talk about CRT. But now I'm off my soapbox. I'll let you. Well, I, I think those school boards could be sponsored by Burger King. Yeah, well, they, they might take the money for it, right? But this is the discussion they're having. Don't make my kid wear a mask. My kid can't. It doesn't have to. Well, isn't it for the common good that we would wear a mask until we knew it was safe? You know, that sort of thing has sort of become the dominant narrative. And who gets to control the narrative is really important, right? The 1619 Project versus the 1776 Project. You know, the narrative is the part that we're fighting for right now. And in public education, that narrative used to be, you know, back when Lisa and I worked together, the narrative was all kids, all kids, no child left behind. Do you mean it? Well, and, and to go back to your other point about being ashamed, I mean, that's what we've been hearing all over the news, too. You know, as a white woman, as a counselor in a school, as, a, as someone who works with students often one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, I will often say to students, um, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I may not have personally done these things. And so I think, I think we get so wrapped up in the, you know, white kids feeling ashamed. I just think that's on the, that's on the white kid then. That's not, we're not trying to, no one's trying to shame 
white kids or, or white people, but we do have to own what has happened because of white people in history. And so that that really gets me going when, when, when people talk about shaming white kids because I think, again, it goes back to ego. We can say, I, I didn't do this personally, and I'm sorry that this has been done, and I will work every day to make it better, and I will do what I can to make it better. So, you know, I just think that the shame thing is ridiculous. I'm tired of hearing about that. Sorry, <laughs> probably. Well, but by the way, I would also say the, the, the shame thing is, for one, if you learn about redlining, that, that shouldn't make a 16-year-old kid feel guilty. Like, they didn't, they didn't do it, right? right? Like, that's their choice, whether to feel guilty. But, but on the, the flip side, that's where the sometimes the attack comes, right? Like, like you said, you, you so I'll, I'll say this, like, if I work, and you guys probably work with a lot more uh, minority kids than I do, but I can tell you, like, one of my things is, if I work with a, a, a minority, right, and I get to know the person, and I know their background, and their obstacles, obstacles are going to be tougher, like, one of the very first things, once I get to know them well enough, is I have to go, okay, I get it, so what? Like, I can't do anything with that. We're still going to make you an unbelievable soccer player. Like, you know, because I, I can't control that part of it. What I can control is helping you. And so I think there's this, you know, uh, you guys are in education, and so you guys can really shut me down here. But I see, like, I have a friend who works at a local high school, right? And she's telling me about what the kids get away with in their high school, right? And the lack of discipline and the lack of what's going on. The basketball coach comes in and goes, everybody on the basketball team gets to school at 7 a.m. You all have to dress this way. You all have to come practice and, and behave this way, right? And the basketball coach is allowed to do that, right? And gets these kids and helps them, right? But in the classroom, they can't do it. You're disagreeing. I, I just don't think it's that easy. I mean, I, I I'm not I'm saying not, it is. No, no. but I, I think that. Well, first of all, what I would say is that as a white person, it's never me helping a student. It's me supporting a student be their their best self. And so I think we have to be really careful as white educators. Um, and I know it's a cliche, also. But we're, I'm not there to help. I am there to 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 help uh, to to support a student. That sounded funny. I said I'm not there to help, and I'm helping. I'm there to support a student, um, identify their own strengths within the framework of their reality. So yes, there is. There's sometimes, oftentimes, there's nothing I can do about some of their realities, but sometimes there is, um, and I can I can support them figuring that out, and within the framework of their their life, I can um, get to know them, talk to them, figure out what they want. It's it's a person-centered, you know, moving the needle forward and growing as a person. So that would, you know, that's the first thing I would say. I mean, as far as, you know, behaviors and, and getting away with things, quote-unquote, I think that we are, you know, depending on our own past and how we've grown up, we have a very white Eurocentric view of what school should be. And so there are things that happen in our hallways that don't happen at the hallways of other, you know, predominantly white schools. And, and it's it's not bad or good. It's just totally different. And there's a ton of high-level learning going on. There's a ton of, you know, if we remove our biases to what that behavior, you know, what constitutes, you know, getting away with something or bad behavior, I think it's just we have to look at it differently. That's my view. Um, is there stuff that shouldn't go on? Absolutely. But I would argue in white schools, it's the same thing. It just looks different. There, there may be, you know, it's not as overt. Um, so I, I just think we have to be careful about how we, how we describe that and talk about that. It's interesting because there was, there's a Netflix special out that uh, Corey sent to me on Colin Kaepernick. And one of the big issues that, that was going on with Colin, but... Not that it doesn't happen to kids all the time, you know, when you talk about wearing the clothes or whatever, uh, from the basketball coach, his coach has told him he had to get his hair cut. But for him, that was a huge deal, you know, and culturally, that's a huge deal. It's, you know, uh, 
the same thing that we've done in war when we've told people you have to shave your beard or whatever, you know. So culturally, you can't sort of assign a uniform sort of approach, I suppose. But I thought it's interesting that at least that, that was the one instance, you know. Um, but if you talk to some of my colleagues who are here, um, just about hair, because I'm about to stay on that. Um, some of my colleagues who are women will tell you, African-American women will tell you, that people come up and touch their hair. Just, just touch the, like, uh, it's, it's the oddest notion I can think of, you know, but, but now, you, now you start to talk about, and, and I, I, would, I would flip that coin when I was in Africa and sat on a bus. I had a little kid who kept rubbing my arm, and his mother then started rubbing my arm, and it was because I was hairy. It, it, it looked different to them, you know, but, is that, you know, we have to be careful with our judgments about what we think somebody should be doing, and, um, you know, that, that's that's a important point, I think, for, you know, what we bring to the table. And by the way, you are an educator. You work at a school, and you work with kids and teach them, and so you're as much in education. Your paycheck comes from the school just like mine does, but, you know, anyway. And I just want to add to that last point, Rob, you know, I've gotten to know you over the last few years. We've had an amazing conversation. We'll continue to do that. And I reflect on the interaction. Stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I reflect on some of the interactions. For example, you know, the intentional effort, and I know it, it was your idea, but MSO, we have an intentional collaboration with NPS in STEM, right? Yeah. And, you know, you've talked with me about that and, and what that looks like. Um, just what MSOE has done to honor the legacy of Jimmy Banks and having the Simba Soccer Club, uh, which is, you can't get more grassroots than that and being supportive of that. And then, you know, you've had issues, um, you know, that are surrounding race with your team and we've had dialogue. So absolutely, you're an educator. And I think about, um, you know, what if every collegiate soccer coach in this area had that kind of intentionality, not just soccer, but I mean, those coaches, those educators, uh, you're right, you're, there's this natural commonality, we're all pursuing one goal. What could this society look like? Basketball, volleyball, track, if there was a more intentional effort on the parts of educators like what you're doing at MSOE. Want to respond to that? <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing that much, but that's nice. Well, you're on the path. You're on the path, and I think that's really what we've all said, and it's not a destination, absolutely, right? It's a journey. And well, and to, to piggyback on what you said, um, one of my you know, biggest concerns is, is we try to get our kids to go out to the schools and help kids with STEM projects is they don't look at themselves as like these saviors, right? Like you said, you're not, you're just, you're just going in there to, I don't want to use the word help, what can I use? No, no, I, I mean, I said it, and then I, yeah. I said I didn't do it, and then I said I did. Yeah. But I guess you know, the, the, savior, the savior, the savior. Is, is, yeah. is, right. right, but this idea that you're going to be a savior for somebody. No, there's, there's smart kids here that you're just providing a service for them, and it's going to, you know, help you. But I, I see that in, in the nice white parents, but I mean, that's how people saw themselves as, like, these saviors coming in to, to help the poor school as opposed to going, no, there's really bright people in here. Well, I think it's pretty rampant, though. I well, think that's a very white yeah. or white problem. Yeah. In, in, and in research, we would call it colonial latitude. Right. Um, and, you know, we fight it with our research students. Who's the knower and who's the known? And how are you going into a research setting? And how much gratitude do you have for the people who are allowing you to be in their environment and use their interpretation mm -hmm. and learn from them? There's a difference between that and I'm an expert who's coming in to look at you and to tell you uh, about yourself. Like that's a that's a totally different dynamic from a research perspective, you know. Maybe we could end um, this episode and thank you uh, so much uh, for your time, but I just wonder if you would um, give one thing that you think for yourself you need to focus on in this in your future. What What's... What's the pebble you drop in the pond in the next few years? Uh, from your perspective, how do you want to make an impact? And Lisa, I'm asking Lisa, and she's, you know, like, I'm retired. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> thinking going on vacation. Kind of yeah. Well, or maybe maybe even better. What do you think is still on the table, you know, from where, where you left? 
Well, okay, so here's Left one on. thing that I have to say this is stuck in my mind, and it comes from one of your podcasts from, I can't remember who you guys were talking to before, because I work for UCC schools, which is Weatherby schools now, as in my retirement gig, but one of your speakers said, why was, like, for the Hispanic community, right, why was there the ability and the support and the resources to pull together this public charter around supporting the Hispanic um, families in the urban zip codes, but not for our um, African-American families. Like, why are there not the resources? And, and that statement and question has stuck with me. So the pebble in my pond is like, I can't, not, I can't let go of that yet. Like, that, is a, that was a really major statement from whoever that was that you, I was listening to, and I cannot remember. Um, how do we do that? Like, what's like? Why are there not? Why are we like? Why is this not happening? It just there's there's got to be ways. So I'm, that's my my pebble that's still not in the pond. Thanks. You want to go? Uh, I can go. Go ahead. Um, you know, my, mine wouldn't be uh, directly related to this, but I think hopefully it's tangentially related. Um, as 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 a teacher and educator, um, I want people to do a great job of seeking truth, right? And one of the things I see happening consistently now is we're so wrapped up in our identities, whether it's, you know, I'm conservative, I'm progressive, you know, I'm this, you know, whatever it is, I'm Christian, right? That we're so defensive of our identities that we don't, um, try to find truth as much as possible. And the best way to find truth is to consistently interrogate what we already believe. So if we believe something, well, if you want it to be, if you, if you, if you, if you think that's what you believe, interrogate it, interrogate it until you can fundamentally say, yeah, I think this is true. And I think if we, if we like you said data, you said true people as individuals, if we go after truth, right, we're going to get to places a lot faster than if we start with our identities or the group we're a part of. And so I think that to me, um, I, I get, like the biggest data that we should all know is that the, what the Human Genome Project in 1991 found that we're like 99.8% alike independent of race or ethnicity. I'm like, shouldn't that tell us all we need to know? That the things that have happened are human constructions, right? And that's truth, right? That's science. And if we attach ourselves to, to truth and battle to find truth and, and strip away our identities, I think we can make progress. That would be my pebble. It's a hard question. I mean, I think um, the pebble in the pond for me, um, I did get my administrator license recently, so I feel like I, I don't know what the future is for me. I, I love working in MPS. I want to stay working in MPS. Um, I, I really think it is being bold, um, respectfully bold, and not shying away from difficult conversations, not shying away from um, seeking truth, as, as Rob said. Um, I'm also big on you know data, however, qualitative data too, like um, one that stands out in particular is um, a study on shared storytelling. So if we're intentional and we find somebody in our place of employment and for 10 minutes a day, which is a pretty short time, but if you're listening to another person intently, reflectively listening for 10 minutes to that person's truth and that person's story, imagine the transformation in the building, in the in in your your place of employment. And so um, you know, that's been a goal of mine. It's going to continue to be a goal of mine, and I think it, it is transformational in, um, in, in where we work at OAH. Joseph, I, I want to sneak in one more question. You go. I, I have to, because um, I, I just love to, to read, as you do, Rob, and, and to learn and listen to most of these different studies and articles. Uh, we had a, Melissa, you and I had a conversation about Jonathan Kozel and, and our, our, our affection for him. Um, Every book you've told me about, I've written down, uh, and the, um, George, the John Thompson book is on my list to get. What should our listeners be reading that will help them be bold, that will help them seek the truth, that will help them continue to question? Lisa, do you want to add to that, or any of you, but 
I'm always looking for our students or our people. What what should what's going to move people? What's going to move the needle? I've got a list in my head, but you want to do you want to go first, Lisa? No, because okay. I'm, I'm terrible at coming up with what I've read. Uh, I mean, the first one that comes to my mind is the new Jim Crow. Um, I, I don't. I believe the show Alexander. Alexander. Yep. Um, that to me is one of the most moving things I've read in a long time. Um, there is a book called. Um, Community Engaged Leadership for Social Justice. I want to say it's to Matthews. Um, fantastic read. Um, and there's also, I want to say her name is Horsford. Um, it's a book about um, the politics and education in an era of inequality. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I know. I can't Turning up my phone my so I can look up. Um, <laughs> I can't come up with my You know, the, um, <laughs> the, 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 I'm actually an English major, and by, and by the way, I just want to toss in, like, one of the most horrifying things I saw lately is that somebody was trying to uh, not have kids read Beloved by Toni Morrison, and I'm like, it's just, I almost fainted when I heard that. But anyway, um, the, uh, I, I don't know the author off the top of my head, but I just read a book called The Scout Mindset, um, and it, the idea of the Scout Mindset was this idea that you, you know, scout them up, but the whole idea of interrogating truth all by myself, I'm um, and so it was all about, you know, trying to find truth in things. And, and the best part about it was a lot of things are out there teaching you what your brain does. And this, this, this book was telling you how to combat it, right? How to combat this idea that you just find things you agree with and glob onto them. And then, you know, that becomes your identity. So I would say the scout mindset. Um, but I also love, like, podcasts like The Hidden Brain, Freakonomics, how we decide, I think, is one of them, or or no stupid questions. I just think they're beautiful because they break down how we think and why we think. And once we start to understand that better, we, we can do a much better job. I'll throw one in for you. If you haven't listened to Through Line uh, by NPR, you should listen to that as well. Through Line. Yes, because they they um, connect you to the people who are behind the history that's commonly taught, and oh. that's so. It's another look. Yeah, um, good good podcast that way. If and if anybody's ever read Malcolm Gladwell, oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. 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 His history revisit revisited yeah. revisionist yeah. history. Yeah. I would just say, read everything you can. I mean, from mm-hmm. past to the hate you give, the you know stamp. Like, I guess read all of Toni Morrison's books. Read everything you can because I think you can never, especially as a white person, you can never know enough. You can never seek to understand enough of like what you can do, how you kind of challenge your own thinking and the thinking of others that you meet and to use your that privilege like you talked about to have those conversations and so just read anything that everybody recommends. I, 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 I can't even come up with enough titles. Yeah. Thanks everybody for being here today. I really appreciate your contribution and I hope everybody who gets to listen to this uh, understands the gift they've been given. You've been listening to Education Conversations with Corey Thompson and Joseph Boylan. Please leave us a comment about the questions that you have or thoughts about future episodes for us on Anchor. Thank you for listening.